Friends, what do you start each day resting on? Is it your achievements? Is it your to-do list? Is it your self-made identities or your present feelings? When we do this, Lovelace says we aren't quieted. We aren't quieted by these things, so we live in this constant state of validating our existence. You can think of the chariots of fire quote, I have 10 seconds to validate my existence, Uh, a race. We have to validate who we are. So we falsify a record to achieve a sense of peace. Now this is what I can do in my storytelling with Danette. Like falsify the truth. I forget the truth. I don't remember the truth. I have to validate my version of the truth. This is ignorant knowledge. Second thing is ashamed knowledge. Verses 32b through 33, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. That is as written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in me, in him, will not be put to shame. Now the stone here is a reference to Isaiah 28 and chapter 8. Two different verses kind of Paul uses and combines. And he's referencing this stone of offense to Jesus. First, because faith requires that we lay down our idea of self-righteousness and self-identity to accept his righteousness and his identity in Christ. Jesus demands that we humble ourselves before we can be raised up. We stumble over people who don't prove it, don't earn it, right? Like, that's something we stumble over as humans. Like, if you think about Jesus' parable, the 11th hour parable, where the workers who come in throughout the day and the worker who comes in the last hour of the day gets the same thing as the worker who's been working all day. And it's a shocking parable. It's shocking news. And Jesus is trying to level that into his people. That the Gentiles will be this 11th hour people and they will receive the same thing that Israel has received in Christ. It's a stumbling block. right? How many of you have cried out, it is not fair? At something that's happened to you in your life, at something that you see happening to someone else as you witness it, like that is a stumbling stone for us. Fairness. And that is what the Jews are stumbling over in this idea of Gentiles coming to faith and also with Christ. Christ is a stumbling block because of what? The cross. The idea of a Messiah, one who is anointed by God for saving to bring salvation to the world, that that Savior would be crucified, that that Savior would die. Paul says it the message of the, in 1 Corinthians, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. For the religious person, it's a stumbling block to their righteousness. For the irreligious person, it's foolishness. The whole story sounds of a fairy tale. Christ is a stumbling stone to our faith sometimes. A blinder to being in the known. Or he's a rock. A foundation to establish life on. But notice what Paul says, the one who trusts in him, in this Jesus who is the rock of offense or the stone to build a life on, will never be put to shame. And that's the rub. 
Because shame is powerful. The shame of knowledge is powerful. Like that need to cover up, to protect oneself in shame. When you are corrected in any sort of way by anyone with the truth, when you're confronted with that truth, the temptation in those moments is to buffet yourself in shame and protect yourself. Here, Paul says, we would never be put to shame. I think about those feelings of when I feel ashamed, my face gets hot, blood rushes to my head. I, I, can feel, I feel almost dizzy. In response to that, when I feel that thing, I want to fight. I want to hide. I get stuck sometimes in a shame loop where I motivate myself to do good or be good by shaming myself. This is what we do when confronted with truth. This is a form of self-righteousness. That idea of puffing yourself up in in, in, in the midst of feeling shame, of, of wanting to hide and run, those feelings are an attempt to make yourself righteous. And it always leads to more shame because you can't cover up. You're exposed. Whenever the truth confronts us, whenever knowledge confronts us, we are exposed. What words are we living on? What truths are our identity? And every failure exposes us. And so what Israel does is they double down. And isn't this what we do when we're confronted in our lack of knowledge? We lie to protect the lie. We double down with our certainty of being correct. We search for everything or anything that will confirm our biases. And so that leads to point three, stubborn knowledge. Verses one to four, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Paul here begins with lament. Brothers, here, it's not spoken to relating to his Jewish kin, but to fellow Christians in Rome who were trying to grasp this temptation and problem of unbelief. The first three verses are confessional. Paul's heart is for the salvation of his people. My heart's desire is that they can be saved. I can testify of their zeal they have for God. We are to see Paul's heart there, but there's also this distance. He ends verse 2. They have a zeal not according to knowledge. And this is the rub of this section. Human deafness, blindness, hard-heartedness. Maybe you've felt this as you've placed, as you've pleaded with, for someone you know to believe. A, a life constructed on their self and their identity. And each and every conversation ends the same way. And there's real heartbreak here that you feel. Paul is sitting here with you. Christ understands this heart for it is his own heart. But this is where Paul is taking us. The antinomy of God's sovereignty and humans, human responsibility. We talked about that two weeks ago. The accent here in these verses is falling on Israel having a zeal, but one not established in the truth. 
They are zealous for what they believe, zealous to confirm the bias of that belief. And friends, we struggle along this path in our day, right? That is a struggle of this day and age that we live in. The internet makes it so compelling to live in a circle of voices that echo out what we want to be true, what we want to be right, what we want to win. So we search the scriptures for proof decks to validate our own righteousness. We're stubborn in our knowledge. We have a zeal for our positions, and we double down when confronted with alternative accounts. In verse 3, Paul moves from first person to third person. For being ignorant of God, their ignorant knowledge leads to a stubborn knowledge of seeking to establish their own righteousness and not submitting to God's righteousness. This is Israel. This is their story. They are stubborn in their knowledge of attaining their own righteousness, so much so that they will not submit to God's giving of righteousness. It's Israel, but it's also us. This is us. This is our day, our age. This is our people. And our zeal oftentimes is actually grounded in our shames and our doubts. If our stories depend on us to validate them, to establish them, to create them, then whatever is lacking must be compensated with our own virtue. We have a zeal, and then we have to prove that zeal and worth to God and to others to earn credits for salvation, whatever that salvation is. If your salvation is seeing right in your friend or neighbor or tribe's eyes, then you will do whatever to signal that virtue to your tribe to say, you're one of them and you're righteous like they are righteous. Like, this is the human condition, the human struggle, ignorant of God. That ignorant knowledge leads to this stubborn knowledge of seeking to establish our own righteousness and not submitting to God's. And our zeal oftentimes is grounded in those very things, those shames and those doubts. Israel doubles down. They choose, according to Paul, to stay ignorant. They harden their hearts to the truth. There is this rivalry that ensues between a righteousness that comes from God and their own righteousness. And Paul knew this well because this was his story. His story was a seeking to establish his righteousness in the eyes of his fellow Israelites. He would say in other letters he was the most righteous of all Israelites. He was an Israelite of Israelites. And yet, that led him in his zeal to persecute Jesus and his church to kill. This was his story. He sought to establish his righteousness, and that's why his heart aches. He wanted to have status before God. He wanted to have status above his neighbors, and so does Israel, and so do we. To show that we have access to God that other people don't or couldn't have. We know this. Our stubborn determination to be recognized for our sacrifices or our humility are part of that story that we weave out in achieving our identity in the world. And that leads to the fourth point, forgotten knowledge, verse 5 through 8. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law. 
that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteous based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. Forgotten knowledge is probably the most deadly knowledge. How often do we forget? I started with the story about Danette and I, and that's a reality, how much I forget the, the points of the story, the, the way the story actually happens. And my wife has a much more compelling and better memory than I. I should always lean into that, right? This is why we gather for worship, because we forget. We forget that the gift of right, that, that righteousness is a gift. That we being made righteous through the imputed blood of Christ is what makes us righteous, and it's a gift that is given to us. Here in this section, Paul quotes Moses first in Leviticus 18.5, where Moses says about the law, the man who does these things will live by them. Essentially, he's saying if you could obey the law perfectly, you would receive eternal life. And then Paul goes directly to Deuteronomy 30. Right? Remember, Deuteronomy is the covenant renewal given to Israel on the plains of Moab before they enter the promised land, where they renew their covenant before the Lord. Here in Deuteronomy 30, Paul only quotes one part. But in so doing, he's alluding to the whole passage. In Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 and 2, Moses alludes to the fact that Israel will stray from God and receive curses and punishment. Then in 30, verse 6, he says, The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts so that you may love him with all your heart in all your soul, and live. And then in 30, 11 through 14, he says, Now what I'm telling you is not impossible to do. You don't have to go to heaven or over the sea to do it. And what Moses is relaying to Israel in this moment is that this change, this circumcision of heart, this inhabiting the promised land, this ability to go up into the heights of heaven is a gift. You can't do it on your own or by your own righteousness. You need someone from the outside to do it for you. He is setting them up. He is foreshadowing what is to come. And Israel forgets it. Over and over again, the story of Israel as they go into the promised land as they live in the promised land, as they're taken into exile, and even as a remnant returns, time and time again, Israel forgets. What about you? How prone are you to forget that all of this, all that Christ gives, the righteousness that Christ gives to you, is given as gift? Like the circumstances of life come at us and in that moment, we forget that God is good. We are tempted to believe that God does not have our best interest in mind. And so in that moment, we do something to justify ourselves, to establish ourselves, to make us feel better. We either cope or we through like, you know, eating and drinking, or we go and achieve to show ourselves to be not what we truly are. That's what we do, and we forget in that moment 
That grace is given as gift. That is the theme throughout Romans that Paul hammers over and over again. That the gospel that Paul is preaching is a gospel based on gift. And in the Greco and Roman world and in our world, we are prone to forget. In Israel's world, they were prone to forget. And God, Paul is trying to shake us over and over again to remind us that Christ comes to us as gift. And that leads to last point, point five, true knowledge. True knowledge is a zeal with knowledge. This knowledge is Christ is the gift. So Paul quotes Moses in Romans 10, 6 and 7 to show what faith knows. Faith knows that we don't need to do anything to be righteous. You don't need to scale heaven, Paul says, because Christ has already come down from it to you. The incarnation is proof that God has done all that you need. You don't need to scale heaven to God. God has come down to you. Christ has always already come down from it. And you don't have to deal with your own sins in death. Christ has already done that. Paul is showing that Moses knew that something more than law-keeping was required and that God had done all that was required. Christ is the gift. Christ is the gift that is given to you so that you don't have to justify your existence. Christ is also the end of shame. Christ is the rock to build on because in him you can't be put to shame. Why can't you be put to shame? Because the end of the story is resurrection. Right? When Christ dies on the cross and dies the shameful death, the Bible says, cursed is anyone who hangs on the tree. Jesus becomes the curse for you and me. And the temptation in that is to look at that and say, well, that's utter foolishness. It cannot do anything for me. That's not good enough. I have to somehow measure up to what Christ has done. I have something to somehow add on to what Christ has done. But Christ says, no, it is finished on the cross. And then to prove that, God resurrects him from the dead. That is the vindication of God set upon Christ. So that's why he is in the end of shame. So you and I who exist and live in a constant state of shame and anxiety over our shame, the temptation in these moments to hide, right? Instead of confessing, instead of running to God and to others to confess our sins, to be honest and forthright, we hide in our shame. We buffet up ourselves and our stories to try to make us stand instead of resting in Christ for us to stand. Here, God says to us, because of resurrection, because the end of the story ends in resurrection. We will be vindicated. So we don't have to hide in our shame. We don't have to somehow prop ourselves up to vindicate ourselves. Because of resurrection, Christ has been vindicated and we too will be vindicated. So Christ is the end of shame. Christ is the end of the law. Paul says this in verse uh, 4. Christ is the end of the law because Christ is God's righteousness and thus our righteousness, our seeking to establish our own righteousness is void and nil because it is a righteousness that comes from God through faith in Jesus. Jesus is the end of the law. He confronts all of us who are trying to make something of ourselves apart from God and his gift of grace. No matter how you might do that, 
Israel was trying to do this in a righteous sort of way, and yet they are confronted in the midst of trying to do that and said they have a zeal without knowledge because they are trusting and resting on something other than the righteousness that God provides in Christ. Jesus is the completion here, Paul says, of the law. He is the goal of it, the fulfillment of it. Christ fulfills the law by keeping the law on our behalf. He is the goal of the law. The thing that we get at the end of the law is Christ. He is the culmination of the law. In other words, he annuls it and shows that it was always by grace. We thought it was about law and keeping the law, but God has said from the beginning it was about grace. Remember the story of Jacob and Isaac and Esau and Abraham. What's that story based upon? The very beginning, the origin story of Israel started in grace, not law. Jesus is the culmination of the law. The binding nature of the universe, in other words, isn't law. It's grace. Because Christ has met its demands, we can take hold of it only by faith. You can't achieve it. You can't win it. You can only look upon it and trust that it is enough to hold you up, to make you righteous. True righteousness is not our possession or our righteousness. It is God's. It comes as gift. It's received by faith. And righteousness by works, no matter how zealous or or sincere, competes with grace. Like in our world, like we value sincerity. It is an argument for others. Not sincerity. No. Because it's not based and grounded And Jesus, the one who actually provides what we need. Those zealous works, those sincere works done apart from Jesus, competes with Jesus and grace. Christ is the gift, Paul says, that comes down and the gift that lifts us up. He is the gift of the word in our mouth, right? Verse 8, the word is near to you. Hear that today, friends. Wherever you are at, no matter how you walked in this morning or how distant you might have felt from the Lord, here Paul reminds you the word, the very preaching of this word, and you in earshot of it assures to you Christ is near. Moses knew that faith is simply about what you say with your mouth. It would mean trusting Christ for righteousness. What does it look like to have zeal with knowledge? It's ascribing everything, going all in, pouring it all in onto the table, onto Jesus. That's what zeal with knowledge looks like, building on him as the foundation of life. And then out of that, out of the gratitude that Christ will uphold you as you go all in onto him, you bank on him, hope in him as you do that having faith that he will hold you up and then living as he holds you up, even amidst struggles and trials and afflictions, as he holds you up and forgives you in each of the times that you try to live out of your own works righteousness, he still is holding you up. He hasn't left you. He hasn't forsaken you. He hasn't put you to shame. He's there, present, holding you up. The word is near to you. As you build upon that, you then live out of gratitude. You speak God's gospel out of the love that you have experienced. That's what we're going to be talking about in the next, next week. But here this morning, we, we hear this word, that the word of God is near to you. 
And the only response is to respond to Christ with faith. To live out of that with gratitude and life. To be truth-filled. Because even as we tell the truth and share the truth about all that we are, all that we've been, all that we can't be, we won't be put to shame. I love the Cayman's Call song, The Truth, in the chorus. Because there was provision before my need. There was redemption before my sin. For the sake of the world, I thank the Lord that the truth's not contingent on me. The only way we can live, friends, with zeal, with knowledge, is to see that this knowledge and the truth of the gospel and our righteousness is not contingent on us. That it comes to us from the outside. That it has been the story from the very beginning. It's all gift. And it's all grace. And we respond to that gift of grace with faith. That is our story. That is our song. There is nothing new here. The call is to remember this because we forget it, forget it. The call is to bank on it because we're tempted to think that we will be put to shame. The hope is to see that the end of the law has come in Jesus and we live out of grace because he is the gift that keeps on giving to us. Let's pray. God, we ask this morning that you would help us to remember that the truth is not contingent on us. That no matter how, how much and how often we fail to see this, you keep reminding us through your word, the gift of the word that is placed even now in our mouths. And we praise you for that, God. It's not something we deserve you put it in our mouth and you put it in our hearts and then you cause us to proclaim it to ourselves so I pray this morning that that's what we would do even as we come to the table that we would preach the gospel to ourselves that you are the God who is near that you are the God who is our righteousness and that we can't get this on our own but it's been given to us as gift and that we would live out of that with such great gratitude and that we would see our tendency to forget and we would come running again to this assembly week in and week out to hear your word preached to us and to receive your word in bread and wine. And then we go out and we live and we confess boldly because we have nothing to lose because you have put an end to our shame. That we would be a forgiving people because you have forgiven us so greatly that we wouldn't compare and blame because you are the 11th hour God who gives the gift of grace to us who come in last. That's who you are and that's what you do. And So I pray we would live out of that with such gratitude and joy that we wouldn't be curmudgeons with like calculators in hand, but we'd be free of that. And we'd live like people who truly have been given the gift of righteousness in Christ. So help us today, God, to come running to this table to receive with empty hands the things that only you can achieve for us, to imbibe it and taste it and see that you're good. We ask this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.